Hello and welcome to Fast Pass to the Past, the Theme Park History Podcast, Season 2, Episode 14. If you're anything like me, you've probably wondered about the origin stories behind your favorite attractions and theme parks. Well, you're in the right place. Today, I'm going to take you deep into the developmental process of the newest gym in the Walt Disney Company crown, Shanghai Disneyland. This is going to be a special episode, actually, as I will be, for the first time ever, releasing a trip report episode with my boyfriend, also named Austin, which will be downloadable wherever you get your Fast Pass episodes. We'll be talking about our trip to Shanghai and Tokyo Disneyland last April, as well as tips and tricks on how you too can visit this brand new Magic Kingdom for less money, actually, than a Walt Disney World vacation. So without further ado, hello, I'm your host, Austin Carroll. I'm a history nerd, as you probably know, a former Disneyland cast member and a current annual pass holder at the Disneyland Resort. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. I'm so excited to finally bring you the history of Shanghai Disneyland Resort. I've been thinking about doing an episode on Shanghai Disneyland for so, so long, even before I visited the resort in April of last year. Shanghai Disneyland is incredibly special to me personally, as I was at the Walt Disney Company as an intern in 2014 when the park's design was being finalized and constructed. I was friends with several Imagineering interns who worked on various aspects of the park, including writing copy for opening day maps and the designs for Wishing Star Park, which is a unique, distinctly Chinese recreational area which sits adjacent to Disney Town and the park's entrance. So without further ado, again, <laughs> let us dive into the recent history of this modern-day theme park that has captured the attention of the world since opening on June 16, 2016. Although Shanghai Disneyland opened in 2016, the courtship that led to Shanghai Disneyland began long, long ago. It began in July of 1990, when then-mayor of Shanghai made a trip to the original Disneyland in Los Angeles with four other Chinese mayors and came home determined to have a Disneyland in his city. His name was Mr. Zhu, and he rose through the ranks to become the premier of China from 1998 to 2003. He was the one that held the first ever discussions for a Disneyland in China, 17 years before the opening of Shanghai Disneyland back in 1998, with Michael Eisner and Bob Iger, who you may know. At his request, Shanghai Disneyland was originally planned as the Walt Disney Company's first foray into China. Hence, when we talk about the early history of Shanghai Disneyland, we cannot do so without talking about the Hong Kong Disneyland Resort, as the two parks' tumultuous histories and recent successes are relatively intertwined. Hong Kong Disneyland has long borrowed the slogan from Walt's original Magic Kingdom, billing itself since its 2005 opening as the happiest place on Earth. However, its history has been far from fun-filled, with the park's operators dodged for years by struggles with tourist numbers and revenue, as well as labor issues. 
While Shanghai Disneyland has been a runaway success since opening, Hong Kong Disneyland has joined Euro Disney as one of the Walt Disney Company's most disappointing developments. Yet, when Bob Iger and Michael Eisner first entered discussion with the Chinese government in the late 90s, they had no conceivable visions of failure. After all, international tourists from Asia were frequenting their U.S. properties in Florida and California. Tokyo Disneyland had been a success since opening in 1983, and the Chinese government had promised to offset the park's construction costs—the very thing that had killed them with Euro Disney in 1992. In fact, the Walt Disney Company was so sure of their success, they went so far to promise the Chinese national government in 1999 that a Disney theme park in China would generate a minimum of 148 billion over 40 years. Although the Walt Disney Company was originally interested in Hong Kong, Shanghai, and briefly Beijing as locations for their second Asian theme park, Hong Kong was the first to give Disney the green light. In 1999, the Hong Kong legislature gave funding approval for the construction at Penny's Bay. One of the reasons this was so expensive is because they actually had to fill in kind of the ocean, like a lagoon, to make this land that Disneyland would be on. And not only was it was was it expensive, but Disney actually didn't put up that much money. So, of the 14 billion dollars, 5.6 billion was coming from a Chinese government loan, and that was actually formed by the Hong Kong Special Administrative Region Government, which is the Chinese Hong Kong government and the Walt Disney Company. However, despite Disney's assurances of the park's success, it was really a risky investment for Hong Kong. Which was in the midst of shaking off its worst recession in decades. Also, the former British colony had only just returned to Chinese rule in 1997. Disney was smart. They promoted this deal as a tonic for Hong Kong's sagging economy. Meanwhile, as Hong Kong took on the majority of the risk, Disney invested less than 300 million dollars in their new theme park. However. They did risk of something a little bit more valuable to the Walt Disney Company than money. They risked their public image. Commentaries appeared in newspapers in 2000, accusing Disney of taking the Mickey. And tourism workers, associations, lawmakers, and shareholders urged the company not to push through at risk of draining tourists from Asia, which had traditionally represented a sizable percentage of the visitors to Disney World, Disneyland, and of course Tokyo Disneyland. There was also tense relations between the U.S. and China to consider. In fact, with the exception of Mulan, most Disney movies have been barred from being released in China for over a decade. To quell these very vocal criticisms, Disney vowed not to open a mainland China park for at least eight years. Meanwhile, the construction of Hong Kong Disneyland began in 2003, and the first park in China opened its doors to the public on September 12, 2005. It was the smallest Disneyland park in the world, yet the Imagineers took pains to incorporate Hong Kong touches in the park. With Feng Shui masters offering advice on the placement of the gates in some park features, and Disneyland restaurants offering Cantonese favorites. However, the idea for a mainland China park that would cater to those billions of Chinese visitors unable to leave the country due to lack of finances or the country's strict visa system didn't leave the minds of Disney's top executives. In January of 2005, just months before the opening of Hong Kong Disneyland. Bob Iger and Michael Eisner were joined by their wives, 
as they stood on a bridge in a village on the outskirts of Shanghai, a city that was little known outside of China in the financial services industry. Like Walt Disney did as he stood in the middle of a rural Anaheim orange grove in 1953, the two stewards of the Walt Disney Company surveyed the land imagining a new theme park with worldwide appeal. It must have been difficult to imagine, as there was not even adequate roads to get there in a taxi, much less the 50-person passenger vans and buses that were frequented by tour groups at Walt Disney World. However, these ambitious plans of these two men had a wrench thrown in them with Hong Kong Disneyland's first-year numbers came back in 2006. Disney initially refused to release the attendance figures after media reports surfaced saying the park's attendance numbers might be lower than expected. However, public pressure mounted and they finally released the numbers. The park had performed well below Disney's promises to the Chinese government by welcoming a mere 5.2 million guests in its first year. The second year was even worse when park attendance saw a 13.5% drop. In fact, it wasn't even until 2012 before the park saw its first profits, a meager $14 million. Although Disney, with only a 43% stake in the park and $300 million invested, was optimistic these numbers would not impact their bid for a mainland China theme park, the Chinese government was rightfully concerned about entering into another capital-heavy investment into theme parks, especially a Disney theme park. You have to realize that even though this wasn't that long ago, back in the 2000s, people in China didn't really respect Disney that much. They actually didn't really know that much about Disney. They didn't have a strong cachet that it has here in the States and internationally. After all, many of their films weren't even really released in China until very recently. It would take a lot for Disney executives to convince the Chinese government to give them a similar deal to Hong Kong, which by all accounts gave them a sweetheart deal. And it was particularly difficult. After all, it would take five years for the central Chinese government to approve plans for a Disney theme park in the Pudong district of Shanghai. They did so in November of 2009 after a protracted 25-year piece of political negotiation and economic calculation. It was unclear what convinced China to finally approve the deal after years of on-again, off-again talks. The prospect of creating tens of thousands of jobs, both permanent and during construction, at a tough economic moment may have played a role, as the Chinese economy had began to slow in 2009. Other fiscal analysts have speculated that it was the virtue of timing that finally got China to approve the theme park as President Obama had just held his inaugural visit to China just weeks before in November of 2009. Regardless of the reason they decided to finally do it, it was a move that signaled a closed and government-regulated society was now tolerating a certain kind of Western involvement. After all, in 2009, only 20 U.S. films were shown in the country, and now they were approving a giant entertainment conglomerate to come in and craft a theme park. Disney's new CEO, Bob Iger, appointed to the chief job in 2005, called the Shanghai Disney Park the company's greatest opportunity since buying land in Florida. 
After all, by 2009, millions of newly affluent Chinese were making their presence felt in overseas destinations such as Hong Kong, London, Paris, and Thailand. With tens of millions of more fueling China's internal travel and tourism boom, Disney picked Shanghai largely because of its transportation network. After all, moving guests in and out of a huge resort and feeding them are huge, enormous logistical challenges. Not to mention, about 300 million potential customers live within two hours of Shanghai Disneyland's site, which is located between the city's airport and downtown. This is a huge boon, as Hong Kong only has 7.3 million people on the island, and therefore needs to rely heavily on international visitors to create a profit. Feeling confident in their choice, this new Disney park was going to be built with expansion in mind. The initial proposed resort, with a mix of shopping, downtown Disney-style areas, two hotels, and a Magic Kingdom-style theme park, was built to sprawl across a thousand acres of the city's Pudong district, with the theme park occupying about a hundred of those acres. The park is a little bigger than Disneyland in Anaheim, California, and on par with the parks in Paris and Tokyo. Disney's plans for expansion were ambitious, with farther development encompassing more than. 1,700 acres, with a capacity rivaling Disney World in Florida, which attracts about 45 million annual visitors. This time, though, they didn't make any outrageous financial promises to the Chinese government. According to Tom Sags, Disney's former COO who worked on the project, the resort was thought to be a very long-term proposition. Analysts did not believe it would necessarily turn a profit anytime soon. I mean, how could it with a 5.5 billion dollar price tag? However, the central Chinese government was willing to spend the money on the development of a real tourist district in Shanghai. At the very least, Shanghai's and to an extent mainland China's decades-long transformation into a global tourist destination would be solidified by Disney's new theme park. Luckily, the Chinese central government's concerns for their investment were pacified at the beginning of construction, when Hong Kong Disneyland finally recorded profits for the first time in 2012 to the tune of 14.1 million dollars. Suddenly, the Chinese government's 57% stake in this new resort, represented by a holding company, of course, seemed like it might amount to some tactile growth. The Walt Disney Company was also hopeful. Although they only had a 40% stake in the project, they told shareholders on a call that they expected over half of their revenue to come from overseas markets in the coming years. As of 2013, the number hovered around 25%. In March of 2013, the company revealed that what the resort complex would look like when completed in late 2015. Bob Iger's mandate to the Imagineers was to build a park that was authentically Disney. Distinctly Chinese, not just to build a Disneyland in China like they had been accused of doing in Euro Disney in the 90s, when French farmers picketed outside the gates, and to an extent even in Tokyo and Hong Kong Disneyland. One way that the Imagineers accomplished this was to infuse the park with elements of Chinese culture. The idea behind it was that not only could Chinese visitors relate to it, but they could be proud of it and could have a sense of ownership. Shanghai Disneyland is an arranged cultural and corporate marriage. An American company planting itself in very foreign soil 
a gamble on shaping a culture as much as is accepted by it. Shanghai Disneyland, like the Disneyland of 1955, is a huge gamble. The park that opened as Shanghai Disneyland on June 16, 2016, represents the duality of limitless opportunity and calculated constraint. In designing the park, Bob West, president of Walt Disney Imagineering, had this to say: "It's fun to do a new park from the ground up." And say so if you were going to do a new one from the start, without any of the confines of what you're familiar with. What changes would you make? After all, it can be difficult to remember the 1955 original Disneyland, a place so successful and pervasive today that was originally a gamble against all odds, another Walt Disney folly predicted to fail. Many necessary concessions in size and scope were made for Disneyland to become a reality. We've talked about this in several episodes about Disney's early days. We also have to remember that expansions and improvements to Disneyland were constant under Walt Disney's watch, from Tomorrowland's essential rechristening in 1959 to the first Land's expansion with New Orleans Square in 1966. But the park was always and forever working within the constraints of its 1955 conception. The park was limited as businesses built on the adjacent land Disney could not originally afford to buy, and they were already boxed in that physical space. As for the Disneyland Resort, Disney didn't actually even own a single hotel on property, having to contract out the Disneyland Hotel due to monetary constraints. What would Disneyland look like if it were conceived from the beginning, with the confidence of over 60 years of success, designed with over 60 years of theme park experience and the latest breakthroughs in technology and engineering, and constructed with a nearly infinite budget? Only a multinational company worth more than 150 billion dollars could provide. Shanghai Disneyland is the closest we get to answering that question. Shanghai Disneyland is the first truly modern Disneyland. After all, the differences between Disneyland that opened on the outskirts of Los Angeles in 1955 and the one that opened on the outskirts of Hong Kong in 2005 are surprisingly minimal. Fishinados may delight in the small differences between them, but taken as a whole, they're largely the same experiences with exactly the same beats. Disneyland as a concept has been nothing if not resilient. Remaining steadfast despite time, place, and culture. However, a park with different themes and different perspectives was needed in Shanghai. This necessitated a different execution than the American cloning of previous attempts. To lay the roots in mainland China, Disney was forced to use a blank slate to reconceptualize Disneyland in 2016. To make Shanghai Disneyland work. Disney had to export Disneyland without Walt's America, the very soul of Disneyland as we have always known it. According to Matt Amos, director of live entertainment at Shanghai Disneyland, a dream is a wish your heart makes means nothing to Chinese audiences. A focus of Shanghai Disneyland is a place to relax, reflect, and escape. Open space was a key driver in the physical design, also a key tenant of the park's emotional core as well. Shanghai Disneyland is a statement about leisure and enjoyment and possibility, a set of canvases encouraging you to explore yourself more freely. Perhaps Shanghai Disneyland's greatest strength 
is that it's cut anything that could bring complicated cultural baggage and conflict with this playful freedom, which is obviously a pretty big departure from Walt Disney's Americana and his frontier towns. Perhaps where this marked change is most visible is that Shanghai Disneyland Resort is the first Disney castle park not to have a Main Street USA-themed area at the entrance of the park. Larry Davis, executive producer and creative director at Walt Disney Imagineering Shanghai, stated the building Main Street in other parks was relevant at the time because Walt Disney grew up in a small town and they wanted to replicate that small town feel. However, because this was in Shanghai, a new market, they wanted it to be completely unique and different from all other parks. After all, they had to introduce Chinese audiences, which likely hadn't seen the majority of the films, to the Disney world. So they thought, why not make it out of the characters? Because characters are really the foundation of the company. The street can best be thought of a bit of Toontown in Anaheim and Tokyo Disneyland, combined with Buena Vista Street at Disney's California Adventure and Hollywood Boulevard at Disney's Hollywood Studios. Note that even though Tokyo Disneyland's entrance is called World Bazaar, it's still an area filled with shops that reflects early 20th century America, matching the Main Street USA areas of other Magic Kingdom-style parks. Instead, the entrance of the Shanghai Disneyland Park is called Mickey's Avenue, and it's done so it purposely avoids saying it's in the U.S. According to Bob Iger, this land's inspired by the personalities of Disney cartoon characters such as Mickey Mouse, Minnie Mouse, Donald Duck, and Chippa Dale, and it should feel like it could belong in China. There was also the creation of distinctive and, for now, free public park just outside the gates of Disney Town. In Chinese culture, families often spend time in local parts to exercise, play games, and relax in nature. This beautiful park, named Wishing Star Park, was built around the lake with that in mind and is definitely unique to the Shanghai Disneyland Resort. However, the park did not open on December 2015 as planned. Instead, Disney and its Chinese partner, the Shanghai Shin Group, announced an additional $800 million investment in 2014 to add even more attractions, including a soaring attraction called Soaring Over the Horizon, borrowed from Epcot and Disney's California Adventure, which since opening has proved to be the most popular ride in the park among Chinese audience. The investment is attributed to timing. After posting profits again at Hong Kong Disneyland in 2014, Disney was confident the Chinese economy was booming and the market for leisure activities among the Chinese middle class was huge. In fact, by opening in June of 2016, the Shanghai Disneyland Resort was already deep into the construction of their very own Toy Story Land, which had not even been announced. Walt Disney once said Disneyland would never be completed as long as there's imagination still left in the world. His words really ring true for Shanghai Disneyland, which has not halted construction since opening in 2016, with the park's first expansion, Toy Story Land, opening in late 2018, and a Zootopia Land on the way. Toy Story Land includes an additional three rides, two restaurants, a show, and a gift shop. According to Bob Iger, there is ample room to expand this park, to build a second park, to build more hotels, and to expand the two hotels they have.
Despite the rain, the resort opened with fanfare on June 15, 2016, after over a month of soft openings for family, friends, and the park's construction workers. The park had taken five years to construct. Opening day tickets sold out in a few hours after they'd gone on sale at midnight, March 28th. The monumental task of opening the park, which included planting 2.4 million shrubs, stocking 7,000 pieces of merchandise, including Mickey ears, and training 10,000 employees, had its challenges. Right before opening, engineers were racing to finish an elaborate whitewater raft ride, and Soaring Over Horizon, the park's newest ride, having just started construction months before opening, was having some technical difficulties resulting in four-hour lines on opening day. However, Shanghai Disneyland opened as planned at 320 acres, roughly three times the size of the Magic Kingdom at Walt Disney World. The entire resort encompasses 963 square acres, including Shanghai Disneyland, two hotels, Disney Town, and Wishing Star Lake Park, at nearly twice the size of Anaheim's Disneyland Resort, with six themed lands, Adventure Isle, Gardens of Imagination, Mickey Avenue, Tomorrowland, Treasure Cove, and Fantasyland. According to Bob Iger and the park's dedication, the lands would allow guests to discover imaginative worlds of fantasy, romance, and adventure that ignite the magical dreams within all of us. Shanghai Disneyland centerpiece is the Enchanted Storybook Castle. The castle rises into the air at 197 feet, and it's unique as it's both the largest and tallest castle in any Disney theme park, and it does not even have a single patron princess. Instead, the Enchanted Storybook Castle is home to all Disney princesses. I guess it's big enough to be that. Enchanted Storybook Castle is thankfully not a clone like Tokyo or Hong Kong's opening day castle, instead taking a unique approach that is a bit more innate and more chateau, arguably a bit more realistic. The castle is a Disney first, as it features not just a walkthrough or a restaurant, but both. Their restaurant being called the Royal Banquet Hall, which takes on a similar role to Cinderella's Royal Table at the Magic Kingdom. Walt Disney Imagineering President Bob West nixed the idea of placing a dragon in the castle dungeon, like that present in Disneyland Paris, due to China's reverence for the dragon, for the creature. If you go there, you might also be surprised that many usual Disney park features have been redesigned or are absent from Shanghai Disneyland so that the park can farther cater to Chinese visitors. For instance, the park does not feature a railroad surrounding the park. Despite the entrance plaza structure evoking the train stations that occupy the space in other Disneylands. As a replacement for a central spoke tub, the center of the park features a collection of Chinese zodiac gardens called the Gardens of Imagination. There are also mosaics, 12 in total, depicting Chinese zodiac style renditions of 12 Disney characters. Gardens of Imagination is actually the land that's home to Dumbo the Flying Elephant and the Fantasia Carousel, as opposed to being in Fantasyland like the places that are found in most theme parks. Strange enough, this land is also home to a small pavilion, reminiscent of the short-lived Marvel Expo Pavilion at Disneyland's Tomorrowland, called Marvel Universe, which is a meet-and-greet pavilion featuring Marvel characters, including Spider-Man. 
Meanwhile, Shanghai's fantasy land evokes a village in a forest, somewhat akin to the approach of New Fantasyland in the Magic Kingdom that debuted in 2011. The land is the park's largest land, the only fantasy land in the world where you can't see the back from the front. Thought that was so cool. It includes variations of rides located in other Disney parks. Attraction include Seven Dwarves Mine Train from Walt Disney World, which was actually originally designed for Shanghai prior to opening in Magic Kingdom in 2014. Peter Pan's Flight, Disney Staple, The Many Adventures of Winnie the Pooh from Disneyland, and for the first time in forever, a Frozen sing-along celebration from Hollywood Studios. Fantasyland's premier attraction is Voyage to the Crystal Grotto, a 10-minute boat ride around the castle and even under the castle that takes guests past animatronic scenes that utilize fountains and water effects. These films include Tangled, Aladdin, Mulan, Fantasia, The Little Mermaid, and Beauty and the Beast. The land also has a unique walk-through hedge maze called Alice's Curious Labyrinth. Inspired by the 1951 and 2010 film adaptions of Alice in Wonderland, the rumor is that this attraction builds on the plans for the Unicorn Hedge Maze, originally designed for the Beastly Kingdom expansion of Animal Kingdom, that was never built in the early 2000s. To learn more about Beastly Kingdom, be sure to check out episode 10 of Fast Pass of the Past. Instead of teacups, Fantasyland in Shanghai has a honeypot spin based. To the 2011 animated film Winnie the Pooh, where Pooh sings, "Everything is honey." The park does have a Tomorrowland, actually, but it is virtually unrecognizable with sleek minimalism and a modern silver, blue, and white color scheme. According to Imagineering, they sought to create a city of the future filled with optimism. As such, they eschewed future equals space, conceptual laziness, and created no Space Mountain for the theme park. Instead, it is home to Tron Lightcycle Power Run, an indoor Tron-themed roller coaster that will be making its way to the Magic Kingdom within the next few years. Similarly, instead of an Astro Orbiter attraction, Shanghai Disneyland includes a spinning jetpack ride. Other attractions include Star Wars Launch Bay from Disneyland and Buzz Lightyear Planet Rescue, a variant of previous Buzz Lightyear dark rides located in Disneyland, Disney World, and Disneyland Paris. Tomorrowland also has an original attraction called Stitch Encounter, which utilizes the same technology and idea as Crush Chalk at DCA, Epcot, and Tokyo Disney Sea. Other conventional themed lands, such as Frontierland and Liberty slash New Orleans Square, are omitted entirely or changed beyond recognition. Adventureland is reimagined into Adventure Isle. However, Adventure Isle actually takes its operational cues not from Adventurelands in the various Disneyland locations, but from California Adventure. The area is practically a re-theme of Grizzly Peak at Disney's California Adventure. Both feature a river raft ride through an iconic mountain, a version of Soren, an interactive play trail area, and a quick service restaurant. According to Stan Dodd, creative director, Walt Disney Imagineering Shanghai, his motto for Adventure Isle is "Seek adventure, discover yourself." And I gotta say, it's successful. 
with Soarin' Over the Horizon and Roaring Rapids, a river rapids ride, and Camp Discovery, which is made of three elevated ropes courses that overlook the park with caves, waterfalls, a hidden temple, and cliffs. Camp Discovery is a highlight, as there's really no equivalent at any other Disney park. It's a rope trail loosely inspired by the world's most dangerous hike. It's a complete and total success and thrilling. However, we don't really see this going to be imported anywhere else. And that's because the attraction is primarily made feasible by the labor rate in China that allows the attraction's 39 operators to be cost-effective. Adventure Isle also features Tarzan Call of the Jungle, a live acrobatic stage show developed and directed by a Chinese woman who tells the story of Tarzan with Chinese acrobats. Likewise, instead of appearing in Adventureland or New Orleans Square, pirates get their own land to call home at Shanghai Disneyland. It's called Treasure Cove, and it's themed to an 18th century Spanish harbor town located on a Caribbean island that has been captured by Captain Jack Sparrow from Pirates of the Caribbean. Obviously, most Disneylands that aren't in China celebrate American Old West and westward migration. In that sense, Treasure Cove is very much Shanghai's Frontierland analog, romanticizing the exploration and mystery of a pirate's life. The land's marquee attraction is Pirates of the Caribbean, Battle for the Sunken Treasure, a dark ride that's based on the films. Led by Imagineer Luke Mayrand, the ride feels like Disney flexing every technical and imaginary muscle it has currently into one impressive deadlift. It utilizes the zegas of current theme park design, projection screens, but they are not the sole focus except in key scenes and work more in synergy with the physical sets than seen in anything Universal or especially Disney has done previously. Like its predecessors Blue Bayou or Paris's Captain Jack's, Pirate shares a space with the wonderful indoor eatery Barbosa's Bounty, which is actually a quick-service restaurant with amazing atmosphere. I mean, you can watch the boats go by in the attraction, which I always love to do. The land is also home to Eye of the Storm, Captain Jack's Stunt Spectacular, a stunt show inspired by the films, and the land is also home to an interactive play area above a ship. There's also, in a throwback to Disneyland, Davy Crockett's Explorer Canoes are also located in this area. Their path explores both Adventure Isle and Treasure Cove. However, this attraction has been lost in translation for some. On opening day, people didn't realize that they had to paddle, so cast members were paddling for like 30 people. Several staple attractions, such as the aforementioned Space Mountain, Jungle Cruise, and It's a Small World, all of which are found at the sister park in Tokyo Disneyland, are excluded to ensure the park is distinctly Chinese. In terms of food, per Disney, only 10% of the food in the park is Western, with 20% Asian and 70% Chinese. Bob Iger even tasted the food in advance, including a Mickey Mouse-shaved Peking duck pizza. Restaurant seating was even rethought. After studies found that Chinese guests take longer over meals, and extensive picnic areas were built to ensure the park catered to extended families with grandparents. In part because of China's long-time one-child policy, 
Shanghai Disneyland must have strong intergenerational appeal. Even the restrooms are distinctly Chinese, with stalls that hide squat toilets, as is customary in China. However, as I know, there is always at least one American-style toilet as well, so definitely don't let that deter you if you're planning on visiting. Also, there is plenty more live entertainment in the park that can be found stateside, as many Chinese patrons prefer that to thrill rides. A theme that is represented in other Asian parks, Tokyo Disneyland and Disney Sea, where live entertainment has to utilize a daily lottery system due to its popularity. Even with this focus, though, on live entertainment, Shanghai Disneyland opened with more rides than Hong Kong Disneyland and Disneyland Paris had when they opened. They had almost ten major attractions, like e-ticket attractions, to visit and queue for when the park opened. That's insanely unusual for a new park. So they put in a lot of money. They negotiated for over twenty years with the Chinese central government, and did that risk pay off for the Walt Disney Company? Short answer. Yes, in less than three years, Shanghai Disneyland is proving to be one of the Walt Disney Company's most successful theme parks, with more than 11 million visitors in its first year of operations, putting it in the top seven of theme parks worldwide. The total exceeds the company's most optimistic expectations. In the same way, Shanghai Disneyland's history is tied to Hong Kong Disneyland. Its successes are tied to Bob Iger's legacy at the company. He spent 17 years to build the 5.5 billion dollar theme park in China. In fact, he even signed his work. The peony at the top of the Shanghai Disneyland castle is actually signed by Bob Iger. At 11 million visitors, Shanghai would rank in the middle of Disney parks, slightly outperforming Disney's park in Paris. The U.S. parks see more visitors, with Hong Kong seeing significantly less. The project is meant to boost Disney brand in a country where average people haven't grown up with characters such as Mickey Mouse in the same way their American counterparts have. Putting a park there was seen as an important step for Disney, not just for the theme park part of the business, but for the company as a whole. The idea was to use the park as a platform to market Disney's characters and movies to the Chinese consumer, and to get the children and families there excited about them. Although Disney holds only a minority position in the park, the profit potential for the company has been nothing short of spectacular. It receives a 43% share of revenue from the park, which includes merchandise, food sales, and hotel income. Disney also receives a fee for its role in managing the resort, and royalties for use of its characters. Moreover, Shanghai Disneyland has increased interest across China for its movies, toys, clothes, video games, and books. Now, it's still early days to fully understand the impact that the park is having on Disney's China business. However, we can look towards Disney movies. Disney movies have been successful in the country since the park opened, including and especially the movie Zootopia. The movie was released in March of 
And since then, it has earned $236 million at the box office in China and is the number one animated film of all time in China. Inspired by this reaction, Zootopia has recently been announced as Shanghai Disneyland's eighth themed land. Construction will begin soon, and it will be the first Zootopia land in any Disney park worldwide. Now, I'm super excited for this because I love Zootopia. But I am especially excited because they mentioned the word first like eight billion times in that press release. So it's entirely possible that this is being co-developed from multiple gates worldwide with Paris or Disney World's Hollywood Studios or even Animal Kingdom seeming the most likely. Regardless, the Shanghai Disneyland Park was once predicted to be a money loser for years given its small size and high ticket prices. Guys, even people in China thought this would fail. One property tycoon in China said the park would not be profitable for 20 years. Surprisingly, the resort started to make money three years ahead of market expectations. With a profit on the books in the third quarter that ended in April 30, 2017, and a break-even for the full year. The runaway success of Shanghai Disneyland gives an idea about the spending power of the Chinese middle class. Meanwhile, Disney's first foray in China and the smallest Disneyland, Hong Kong Disneyland, continues to fall farther into the red, as losses double in 2017 for the third consecutive year. Hong Kong Disneyland saw 6.2 million visitors in 2017, making it the second lowest performing park after Disney Studios in Paris, which saw 5 million. Locals were the biggest group of visitors to Hong Kong Disneyland last year, making up 41%. They were followed by mainland Chinese tourists at 34% and overseas visitors, which accounted for up to 25%. It's pretty dismal. However, they do have plans for new attractions in Hong Kong, including attractions based on popular IPs that are not present at Shanghai Disneyland or even Tokyo Disneyland, namely Frozen and Iron Man. With these new attractions, Hong Kong Disneyland is definitely looking to make a comeback. Their plan is to capture a greater percentage of the 60 million visitors that visit Hong Kong annually. I hope that you enjoyed this look into the newest and largest gym in the Walt Disney Company crown. I had a lot of fun visiting Shanghai Disneyland Resort last year, and I hope I've inspired you to plan a trip to the newest Asian park sometime in the future. As I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, I am making a trip report episode available with my special guest, my boyfriend. So if you want to check that out, it will be the podcast episode right after this one in all of your podcast providers. Thank you so much for your continued support of Fast Pass the Past. I am in awe by the wonderful messages that I receive daily, and I'm so glad this show has meant something to all of you, and I'm very honored to play even a small part in your lives. Make sure to check out our brand new store on TeePublic for all your Theme Park History expert merch. You can find the link at themeparkhistorypodcast.com. And make sure you email me at fastpastthepast at gmail.com if you have show ideas, disagree with anything I said, or just want to say hi. I love that. You can also message me on Facebook if that's easier. You can find the show notes for this episode at www.themeparkhistorypodcast.com. 
And please leave an iTunes review if you like the show and want to hear more. I'd love more reviews on there. Thank you so much. <laughs>